You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Marty Peterson. Uh, I've known Marty for many years, and I'm just so pleased to have her uh, come and, and speak with us today. Uh, Marty has had quite an extraordinary career. Uh, she's a 32-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, and during that entire time, she was in operations, uh, which I have to say, having been there, uh, was not the easiest time for women in operations, and Marty, in that period, uh, had a very distinguished career. And uh, we are going to get a chance uh, today to just touch uh, on at least one of the, uh, and I'll call it a highlight, one of the operational highlights uh, uh, of her career. So uh, Marty, uh, as I said, was in the agency for some 32 years. Much of that time, she was working on what we call Soviet East European targets, that is, uh, attempting to recruit people uh, during the Cold War uh, to uh, provide information covertly to the, to the U.S. government. Uh, in addition, she served at other posts as well. I think, Marty, you spent some 10 years uh, in, uh, in foreign assignments, didn't That's you? That's right, all okay. over the world. All right. Well, Marty, it's just a delight to have you here. Thank you. And what I'd like to do is, um, could you just sum up in, in a few words, if you could, uh, your career up until when you were assigned to Moscow? Thanks, Peter. I, um, <clears throat> at the time of the early 70s, it was difficult for women to get into operations. Uh, women were generally someone's wife or someone's secretary. Um, and by a certain amount of luck and um, some hard work, I managed to obtain a, 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 an assignment to Moscow as my very first assignment overseas. I um, spent 44 weeks in Russian language, uh, which was my initial challenge. Um, 44 weeks is a long time to spend eight hours every day learning uh, Russian, but I learned to love the language, too. It's a wonderful interesting language. Uh, with that, I prepared to go to Moscow as the first uh, female case officer assigned there. Um, oh, and oh. I was single as well. Okay. Now, just a couple of things, to, because uh, some of the people who listen to us, I know, 
for them, some of these terms and so forth are new. But I'm assuming that uh, being prepared to go to Moscow as a case officer, uh, you would have had to go through training, and that would have included uh, uh, such disciplines as what? Well, you learned um, all the, the phases of recruiting people, mm -hmm. um, people who were willing to cooperate with us and give us information generally foreigners overseas. And we went through a, a long period of training uh, to learn all the different aspects of how you um, get someone to cooperate and provide information and intelligence to us. Now, Marty, as, as you know, for a time I was in the same area that you were. And, uh, and we called that in the agency, we called it the denied area. Right. Because it was an area that was so the Soviet Union, then Soviet Union and East Europe. Uh, the uh, local intelligence services uh, were very aware of CIA's interest in, in uh, trying to recruit people there or, or run agents there, agents being the people we recruited. And uh, therefore it, was a, it really was for us a hostile environment. They weren't trying to kill us but they were trying to catch us right. and, and harass us and make right. life difficult for us and uh, in effect keep us from doing our jobs to the extent that they could or if we did it, catch us. Right. And I know that for people going on those assignments, we gave you an extra dose of training. Right. Specifically uh, in being able to try and spot surveillance of yourself, uh, to try and elude surveillance um, and much of our communications uh, in the denied areas was, was what we called impersonal communications having to do with putting down dead drops, that is hidden caches, or uh, going to hidden caches and getting the reports from the agents, right. or, or going to the caches and leaving money or directions or something. And we gave people who were going there a very pretty intensive course in doing that. And I'm assuming you went through that too. Yes, I went through it, uh, and as a single person, I didn't have a spouse to help me uh, perform these tasks of putting down dead drops while, while surveillance was in the neighborhood, while, while surveillance was watching as in our training. Uh, so it was, it was difficult to do that by myself because I only had one set of eyes to spot surveillance, one set of um, kind of <clears throat> sense to when it was right to put down a dead drop when I was out of sight of surveillance. But Peter, when I got to Moscow, that training uh, was somewhat um, superfluous because the KGB decided, because I was a woman, uh, that I was not a threat to them. And during my entire 21 months in Moscow, I had no surveillance except when I was with uh, other people in the embassy who had surveillance, but the KGB decided because I was a woman, we assumed um, I was no threat, and they didn't follow me. Well, the KGB, of course, was the Soviet intelligence service, which right. was everywhere at the time. That's right. Uh, and you had, uh, I think, uh, I imagine by the time you were sent to Moscow, you had a relatively high level of confidence that you knew what you were doing that you could spot surveillance and, if possible, either, as they say, abort the mission. Right. Don't go through with it. Right. Or, if you felt you were clear, uh, to go through with it. Right. Uh, now, 
And of course, it's interesting you, you allude to that because in some cases, um, we and some of the other intelligence services had wives perform operational missions because we thought the KGB was less suspicious Vigilant, of them. Vigilant, right. Um, so I think it's interesting. Do you think that they knew you were connected within, in those initial weeks? Do you think they knew you were connected with intelligence, with the CIA? No, Peter, I really don't because when I went out, I didn't follow um, a previous officer. I went out on my own without any connection to our people in Moscow or anyone who had been there before me. I was just out there uh, working in the embassy without any connection to CIA. Did you have, did your job in the embassy bring you into touch with uh, uh, citizens of Moscow, in other words, was it a, a job where you were dealing with logistics or supplies or stationery, whatever? Right. It was in uh, the consular mm -hmm. um, section. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it involved consular work. And I think you said this was in the, around 1977. That what, When were you actually there? I arrived in November of 75, and I left in July of 77. Okay. And um, so for the first part of that tour... Uh, you felt you were pretty clear, uh, and during that period of time, were you able to carry out, uh, and I'll just call them operations or missions? Right. Um, I was the only person in the station who, who um, we could count on always being able to go out and perform operational acts, because surveillance never seemed to bother to look at me. And each time I went out, I would spend two or three hours out on the street driving a circuitous route and trying to see whether surveillance was following me, uh, stopping at various places to do errands or uh, out in remote parks or churches. And there was never anyone ever following me. It was an amazing thing and really became our secret weapon there. So um, I was also, at the, because I could guarantee this, I uh, was given pretty much the full uh, responsibility for an operation um, by the name of Trigon. He was an officer um, that we had recruited, a, a Soviet citizen who we had recruited overseas. And he had agreed to work with us when he went back to Moscow. So when he arrived in Moscow, I was able to pick up and, and do dead drops in the woods with him. He and I never met, but we exchanged these logs and rocks that I cached in the woods for now, him. Now, can you tell me, because it's, it's very seldom we have a chance to speak to somebody right out of the trenches, <laughs> as it were. Um, let me ask you, uh, can you just uh, uh, tell us in a few words what Trigon was professionally? Why was he valuable as, a, as an agent, as an asset? Trigon... Uh, was in the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and in his office every day he read documents going overseas to the Soviet ambassadors overseas and he received documents back in response. He was the secretariat which managed the paper flow so he had access and he could read all these different documents. So in his cooperation with us he used a miniature camera and took pictures of these documents for us and then passed us these little miniature cassettes in these rocks or 
um, logs that were fabricated, that were made, hollowed out, so he could pass these to us um, at night uh, in the dark. Okay, let me ask you a specific question, and I quite understand if you if you prefer not to answer it, and that is, uh, I'm I'm making the assumption that the camera was concealed in something, it was a concealed camera. Can you say what that was at this time now? Right, I, it was in a very large um, fountain pen, um, which, um, was European made that he could have, uh, if someone saw him having this pen, uh, fountain pen, they would think it was just something he had been given as a gift. But inside was this camera, which was concealed in the barrel of the pen. So in effect, he was giving the U.S. government, by way of CIA and right. Martha Peterson right. and Trigon, uh, eyes, so to speak, into the very internal communications of the foreign ministry with its ambassadors abroad. Absolutely. And that's quite extraordinary. I mean, it would, it would say, uh, give a sense both of what they were reporting, right. as well as what sort of guidance and, uh, as it were, back-channel messages they were being given. Right. So right. he was a very valuable asset. Right. And I would imagine many of his reports became what we called in the agency blue stripers. Absolutely. That is, they were given restricted circulation. Right. Uh, perhaps. Uh, they would make the president's daily brief and would go to some other senior officials like the Department of State, Chief of Staff, and so forth. That's right. Only 10 copies each of each report from mm -hmm. his documents. Okay. And uh, he had uh, volunteered to work for us uh, abroad uh, when he was in a, a, an assignment abroad. That's right. And, uh, and uh, agreed to work with us inside Moscow. What was it like to try and drive around, not aimlessly, but to look purposeful, and at the same time try to be alert for surveillance? What was that like for two or three hours? Did you run errands? How did you make that look unsuspicious? In Moscow at the time, there weren't a lot of places to run errands, and because I always went out after work at night, um, most places were closed. So I would spend two or two and a half hours driving what would fir at first look like a reasonable route from my apartment in the south of Moscow towards the embassy. But as I drove further and further, I would digress from a logical route to where I was in an area where there was no reason for me to be and that if I had the KGB following me, they would have to come and see what I was doing to make sure I wasn't doing anything nefarious. Well, um, they never were looking. They didn't follow me. So there was really no issue. And eventually, I would just conclude I had no surveillance. Were you, you, you mentioned earlier that these, uh, <clears throat> in many cases, these drop sites where the ca hidden caches were were in the woods or on the fringe of the woods, um, did you have, if you had been apprehended there, uh, did you have some plausible reason? You obviously, you didn't have a dog that you were walking or? No, I didn't have a dog, that's right. <laughs> okay. Um, my plausible uh, reason, uh, probably not, not late at night all by myself in the middle of the woods. Um, there was probably no reason if I had gotten caught out there um, okay, as, as I sit here, 
mm -hmm. uh, speaking with you uh, at noon, so to speak, in the Spy Museum downtown Washington, uh, I see in front of me an attractive blonde woman, uh, articulate, uh, personable, outgoing. Were you concerned at all about crime and, and your own safety uh, being driving around Moscow and being in the woods late at night? You know, Peter, it's funny. It was the Brezhnev era. There were no guns. There was no crime. There weren't gangs. And basically, uh, there were very few people out on the street, so I never did feel threatened in any way. Um, there, nobody even noticed me. I was just a woman out on the street walking. Okay. Well, Marty, what I'd like to do is I'd like to bring you to uh, one of your planned meetings with Trigon in July of 1977. And I wonder if you can tell us what transpired at that meeting. We had had our concerns about Trigon because he had missed a few of the previous meetings. So um, I was prepared um, to make this drop to him and pick up a drop from him. Um, and it was on top of a railroad bridge at 10.30 at night um, on July 15th. Um, everything was as normal that day. Um, I worked all day in the embassy and then I went home and changed my clothes and left on a what we called our counter surveillance run when I would go out for these two hours driving around town to see whether I had surveillance. And as before, I saw no surveillance. I went way out of the normal bounds of where people with the embassy would drive. and. I saw nobody following me. Um, it was a summer night. It was twilighty at um, 10 o'clock at night because of, you know, midsummer had just been there, you know, when there's always daylight in the summer months in Moscow. And I, um, I finally determined I had no surveillance. I parked my car downtown on Gorky Street and um, went into the metro, into their subway system which I often did. I um, put my five Kopec piece into the machine and got on a, a metro train and rode uh, for several stops. And I got off and I changed and then I rode for several more stops and nobody seemed to care or get on and watch me uh, or follow me between these stops. Finally, I got off at Lenin Stadium at that stop and it was funny. Peter, as I got off, there were a whole lot of people on the station platform. So I fought my way against the crowd to the escalator at the end of the platform, only to see that all the escalators were coming down. There had been a soccer game, and that was the way they had crowd control, by having all the escalators coming down. So I had to retrace my steps, which allowed me to also look for surveillance, people following me. And then I went up onto the street from the other end of the platform out into a very dark area of the park around the stadium and there was no one at that end they had all gone to the soccer game and were leaving at the other end of the park um, I walked around for quite a while I stopped on park benches watched people that might be interested in me and there was no one there so I continued on out to the river where the railroad bridge was, where this drop site was. I walked up the river along the, uh, the sidewalk 
looking around, trying to see if anyone was there. And as I returned towards the bridge and towards my final stop at the top of the bridge, there were three men that crossed the street uh, and in, entered into um, a cemetery there. Um, they, they all had white shirts on, and in the twilight light of that evening, I remember their shirts kind of glowed in the dark. I um, took note of them, but there were people on the street around because people lived in Moscow. I couldn't tell everyone to leave, um, and there were casuals in the area. So I passed them and began to climb the stairs up onto the bridge. It was about 40-some stairs to the top of that railroad bridge, and as I got to the top, a train came across which fortuitously lit the entire expanse of the bridge in front of me. So I could see that there was no one out on the walkway across the bridge waiting for me. There was no one there but me. So the site was located in the center of a pillar where there was a small window. Um, and the pedestrian walkway went through this pillar. Uh, so I walked into the middle of this pillar and pulled out of my purse a piece of what looked like um, a dinner-sized dinner piece of uh, concrete, gray concrete, and inside was hidden our dropped material for Trigon. I pushed that piece of concrete into the center of that window as far as my arm would extend. Trigon and I had used that site before, so he knew and I knew that that was the distance we would put the package. After I did that, I walked into the, out onto the center of the bridge and there was no one around, so I retraced my steps back through the pillar and started down the stairs. And I was about 10 from the bottom when the three men in the white shirts started across the street. And I realized they started across the street headed towards me. And the fellow in the middle, uh, motion to the other two to fan out so I couldn't run either way and at this point I chose not to run um, that wouldn't have been a solution they grabbed me by both arms and all of a sudden I was in the KGB grasp it was quite a shock I, I think in my heart I wished maybe I was going to get mugged or raped but it was clear when they grabbed me that it was the KGB and with a, within a moment, a big van came from underneath the railroad bridge, and it was like a circus van with a cast of characters that fell out of that van, all of them KGB officers there to arrest me. Um, they held me there momentarily before the rock showed up that I had put into the window, and it became clear to me that they had control of our agent Trigon. And from there, um, it was just a matter of waiting out the process. I, uh, they put me into the van and drove me to Lubyanka Prison, um, which was the head of the KGB's office. And there they took me in and sat me down at a conference table and questioned me for two and a half hours. My um, my boss from the embassy showed up uh, and he helped to confirm to them that um, 
what I had told them, that I knew nothing about what they were talking about. I didn't know who they were, and they really had to let me go. Eventually, they did let me go. Um, I didn't sign anything. I didn't tell them anything. They took a lot of pictures, and they opened up the, the concealment device with all the spy gear we were intending for Trigon. We were, to, we were giving him money, and we were giving him um, camera supplies um, and jewelry and communications plans for the next time. Um, so you were, in fact, questioned or interrogated for about two and a half hours. Right. But, but they did phone the embassy. I mean, they, yes, they didn't they did. hold you in mm -hmm. communicado. No, no. Um, uh, I haven't heard that you were abused uh, other than the fact you were being held against your will right. and questioned. Right. Um, but they observed the protocol of dealing with an, uh, an officer right. of the U.S. government. Um, and they eventually let you go. Were you formally uh, expelled from the country? Were you PNG'd, persona non grata? Were you declared persona non grata? Oh, yes. You were. I left the next day mm -hmm. and flew back to Washington. On That was a Saturday. On Tuesday, uh, the ambassador, the American ambassador in Moscow received the formal uh, paper saying that I had been declared persona non grata. I, I heard a story recently, and I've never had it verified, but someone said that they understood uh, that when you left the airport that the KGB officers, several of them who were involved in your apprehension, had come to the airport, and when the plane took off with you in it, they saluted. Oh, I didn't know that. Have you that heard that? never have heard that. We will have to get that verified. Right. I think they were in admiration of your uh, courage well. and steadfastness. Um, when I arrived back here and um, at Dulles Airport and came through that big black door uh, into uh, waiting safe hands of the people from work, um, there were also two KGB officers waiting there uh, to make sure I got home all right. <laughs> Just observing. Okay. Um, Marty, what happened to Trigon? Um, from what we learned, Trigon committed suicide shortly after he was arrested. He, he really chose to um, take poison and kill himself um, right in front of the KGB's eyes rather than to be held and tortured um, through the rest of his life. How old a man was he? Um, Trigon was 40. A young man, a young man, relatively young Absolutely. man, mm -hmm. and in the foreign ministry. Right. Was he aware? Do you think of? Uh, I, I've got to believe that he was aware of the significance of what he was giving you. Yes, he absolutely. The importance knew that. of the intelligence. Oh, he absolutely knew that, and we told him how important he was, and we paid him um, a lot of money. Um, but for him, that was worthless. Living in Moscow, he couldn't spend the money there. Did he have a family? Um, he did have a wife. He he um, divorced, and then he had an, another woman and had a child with her. Mm -hmm. What what do you think at this point, as we look back and maybe talking to other people? What do we what do we believe his motive was in uh, in agreeing to provide us with information? Um, he made his motive very clear, and I really believed um, it was sincere. He said that he wanted to 
change the Soviet system from within. He loved his country. He wasn't a traitor. He felt that if he gave these documents and this advantage to the U.S., we would help in changing the Soviet Union into a, a democracy and a place where people had free will and could live freely. You know, this is uh, an extraordinary story, and, and I thank you so much for coming and sharing it with us today. Um, and as I mentioned at the beginning, you've had a distinguished career. You were in operations. Uh, obviously, the agency thought highly enough of you to send you to Moscow to handle one of their most important assets. Um, I don't know that we know to this day uh, how Trigon was caught, what led to his compromise, unless you know something I don't. Um, but you know, we know that there are a lot of young people who listen to these uh, podcasts, these spy casts. And given your career, your experiences, including that one, what might you say to younger folks considering a career in intelligence, whether in CIA or any other element of it? You know, I backed into my career. Um, I didn't really head out to be a, a CIA officer, um, but once I did, I realized that it is one of the, the singular professions where you can make a huge impact by just what you do. And each person doing it side by side in an organization such as CIA or others in, in the intelligence community, each piece forms the com the more complete picture of our world and of the dangers and our enemies out there. And I think in Moscow I realized uh, that I was contributing a small piece to that puzzle of, of what the world looks like. Um, and I did it very directly by collecting that intelligence from that man. And that is what the world of, of intelligence and working as an operations officer in CIA meant to me. And I think, well, I know that is possible for people now, young people who really do believe in their country and, and what we stand for and how they can contribute. It isn't a, a huge, uh, being, you know, the leader of, of the world, it is each person contributing that small part to the picture of, of what we know about our world. Well, I know, Marty, you've told me that uh, now that a few years have passed, you have finally gotten your thoughts together and completed a book I did. Uh, on your career, mm -hmm. including this experience. And uh, I think, as you mentioned, I think you've been uh, chomping it around to right. see who might be interested. Mm -hmm. So I, I certainly wish you all the luck in the world on that. I think whoever gets it is going to have a little gem on their hands. Thank you. Um, and well, I, I think, think I think for for uh, several reasons, um, not just because it's my story, but because it is a story of 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 my first husband who died in Laos working for CIA, who was a hero as well as Trigon, whose life was very heroic. And I think those are really the important pieces of my book, more than just my story. Well. Uh, 
Uh, again, I want to, you know, we, we, we even have a display downstairs in the museum with just a big blown up picture of you <clears throat> with these guys in white shirts yes, grabbing you. It's, it's quite true. dramatic. Yes, it is. Uh, with the story of what happened. Mm -hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I want to thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing your story with us, because you too are a hero. And I just want to take this opportunity to thank you so much for your service to the country. Thank, Thank you, you very much for joining us, Marty. Thank and you, And the best Peter. of luck to you. Thank you very much. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you.